This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, healthcare was a big issue in the 2018 midterms, and it's looking to be a big issue again in the 2020 presidential race. Most of the Democratic presidential candidates are supporting an expansion of coverage by including a Medicare for all or a public option system. But while an overall fix for the out-of-control cost of health care is a tough one to implement, a series of smaller fixes could be more feasible and a more effective way of dealing with the overall problems. One such idea would be preferred pharmacy networks, which is the lead of a new brief developed from the Wharton School's Public Policy Initiative. Ashley Swanson is an assistant professor of healthcare management here at the Wharton School. She's also author of the brief titled Preferred Pharmacy Networks Healthcare Savings on the Margins, which looks at the potential savings for enrollees at Medicare Part D. And she joins us to discuss her findings. Ashley, good to see you again. Thanks Hi, for coming nice in. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So I guess break this down for us, the the impact that these preferred pharmacy networks could have specifically around around Part D. Well, the I mean, the big punchline of the article, which is, I should say, joint with my co-author, Amanda Stark, a professor at the Kellogg School of Management, is that these preferred pharmacy networks, we estimate that they've saved the plans that implemented them about 1% of overall enrollee drug costs, which is, you know, relative to the overall cost of the healthcare system is, is kind of chump change. But these kind of 1% solutions do start to add up. And the the scope of the size of these preferred networks is what right now? Well, uh, they're really new. They only really came into being around 2010, 2011. In 2011, we only saw in our sample about 13% of plans having these kinds of preferred networks. Um, But they really uh, took off like wildfire. By 2014, uh, we think... uh, if I'm remembering the number right, 70% of plans had a preferred network, right. and I think it's increased since then. So uh, the plans in the Medicare Part D program have really um, cottoned on to this idea, and, and it's taken off. So part of this is this idea of fixing health care, and that's obviously a topic that's long been discussed now and really is drawing more and more focus. But the idea of these small fixes and this being one kind of component of it to be able to improve health care, do, do you think we have a system where small fixes can lead to a significant impact? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is an idea that I first heard articulated by Fiona Scott Morton, uh, an economist at Yale, and I think it's really sharp. You know, we have this really complex healthcare system, and it sounds exhausting to try and make a hundred tweaks uh, to address a hundred tiny inefficiencies. Um, however, in the U.S. and 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 globally, there's a mass of talented economists and healthcare researchers uh, that study healthcare programs, and they're working hard to find these opportunities and share that information back to policymakers. Now, the counter argument is that. We don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish, right. um, but even if we're even if the ultimate goal is to uh, implement Medicare for all or, or really dramatically overhaul the healthcare system, um, overhauling the healthcare system is hard and time consuming, and uh, it's going to take a minute. So we should be addressing the inefficiencies we're aware of in the meantime. And, and Medicare Part D, it, in looking at some of the work that you've done, seemingly is a is a fairly important focus for you. Oh, absolutely. It's a it's a really fascinating program. Uh, it's a government benefit, but the plans are offered by private firms. And there are a lot of interesting free market forces at work. 
Consumers choose their plans. Plans compete for business. Plans try to interact with other healthcare providers like pharmacies and pharmaceutical manufacturers to try and control costs. It's an interesting marriage of public and private, so it's really fertile ground for economists to study. Uh, we're joined here in studio by Ashley Swanson of the Wharton Healthcare Management uh, Department. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So take us further in- into the concept, the idea that you have in terms of, of these preferred pharmacy networks and, and where the benefits can really lie moving forward. Yeah, so most of the listeners to this program, if they've had the the uh, misfortune to interact with the healthcare system, will have heard of narrow networks. This is something yep. that's very hot topic these days. Most of the time when people talk about narrow networks, they're talking about narrow provider networks. Like, right. oh, this plan doesn't have my doctor. This plan doesn't have my hospital. This, you know, this stinks. Um, in our paper, we study something kind of similar. It's, it's an analogy in the prescription drug market. It's narrow pharmacy networks. So narrow pharmacy networks, in some sense, uh, restrict access or, or at least incentivize um, enrollees to be steered away from some pharmacies within their prescription drug plans. Um, and the plans, arguably at least, use that power to steer enrollees to lower cost pharmacies um, and even maybe get some additional leverage in negotiating with the pharmacies. And pharmacies, we should note, you know, they fly under the radar a little bit in, in the U.S. relative to drug companies or hospital systems. Right. Um, but there, it's a very concentrated market there. You know, you can probably think of what the top four uh, pharmacies are in the U.S. Yeah, I was thinking. And there's been quite a bit of consolidation in this sector over, over the last few years as well, which obviously plays a role in in the cost structure that, that, uh, that a lot of people may have to deal with these companies. Yes, absolutely. That's right. So... Then one of the goals, I guess, of Medicare Part D is to try and keep costs lower. Uh, But part of the benefit is also the pharmacy benefit managers in terms of keeping the cost lower as well, correct? Yeah. So, you know, the argument uh, for these kinds of preferred pharmacy networks is or or of any other kind of cost control levers that exist within these Part D plans is that they're going to try and bargain for discounts from drug manufacturers, from pharmacies, from any part of the supply chain that gets drugs into the hands of enrollees in the program. Um, Now, they can get costs down. Whether they pass those cost savings on to enrollees or to the government, it it really depends on the context. And I'm afraid I don't have a strong answer for that in this context. Part D, from what I understand, doesn't cover every pharmacy in the U.S., uh, that there are independent pharmacies that 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 are not able to be covered in the, in these realms, correct? Yeah, it actually. So something that we were a little bit surprised by is that it even goes deeper than that. Once you start talking about these preferred pharmacy networks, right. now there are these network adequacy requirements in the Part D program that say we don't want you know an elderly enrollee in the Part D program to have to drive a hundred miles to get to a pharmacy like that would that would not be a well functioning program sure. so these network adequacy requirements say that you know if you're in an urban area you have to have pharmacies within x miles if you're in a suburban area it's a little bit higher if you're in a rural area it's even a little bit higher but basically the program requires that these Part D plans have a pharmacy within convenient access of every one of their enrollees or at least the vast majority of their enrollees. Um, So for the networks overall, you know, 
You might have some independent pharmacies excluded mm -hmm. if you can set up a convenient, um, uh, adequate network without, uh, without including every single pharmacy. But typically, you're not going to see the big chains excluded. You're not going to see CVS excluded. You're not going to see Walgreens excluded. Right. When you start talking about these preferred pharmacy networks, the network adequacy requirements I just described don't apply to them. So hmm. you can actually have preferred pharmacy networks where most of the pharmacies in your local area are not included. So hmm. um, what an enrollee then needs to decide to do is, you know, suppose they're enrolled in a plan where the preferred pharmacy network includes CVS, but it doesn't include Walgreens. Right. Now, if Walgreens is their closest pharmacy, they need to make a decision. Are they going to go a little bit further, whether it's walking, driving, or taking public transit to go to the CVS that's cheaper? Or are they going to pay 6 to $8 more for a month's supply of their drug to go to their convenient pharmacy? How are the, the preferred networks in the United States, are they set up? How are they designated? Because I think that's something that, that the consumer probably doesn't understand how that process actually plays out. So that process actually plays out as, as a kind of pairwise negotiation between the issuers of these Part D plans and the, uh, the pharmacies, um, maybe a consortium of pharmacies, independent pharmacies, or the big retail pharmacy chains. So they're actually you know, uh, negotiating with each of these pharmacy chains or other entities and mm -hmm. saying, um, would you like to be in our preferred network? Would you like to participate? And if so, what prices are you going to give us? And I would imagine that in some instances, especially in some of the lower income areas in cities and around the country, you're talking about the economic impact for some of these people being a, a significant problem when you're talking about working on a, on, a, on a tight budget to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. It's this kind of um, it really depends on what part of the income distribution you're in, because for the very low income enrollees, they're going to be um, low income subsidy enrollees in the Part D program. Yeah. And that means they are actually never going to pay more than, say, two dollars and fifty cents for a generic drug one month supply or maybe $6.30 for a branded drug. Um, and for them, these preferred network distinctions don't really matter because the price differential, you know, you hit the, the copay max before that starts to bind. Right. Um, however, if you're just above the LIS threshold, you're still relatively low income. And that's those are the people that are going to get hit hardest. How much shopping... And the term of shopping for pricing is obviously a component that plays in there. But but how much shopping for price really do you think goes on when you're talking about the pharmacy and getting the, the, the prescription at X price compared to Y price from another pharmacy? So this is actually really interesting. Um, there's this huge body of evidence in the health economics literature. And I and I teach a lot of classes on health economics. So so, you know, I see these uh, these papers come out all the time that find that when it comes to healthcare, people don't shop. Even when it's even when you're talking about things that are kind of something you schedule ahead of time, you really have time to shop. You have time to do a little bit of research, like um, say lower limb imaging. Um, people either because they're not aware of all of the providers that are available, or they're not aware of the prices at those providers. A lot of information barriers might come into play. People do not shop. Um, and so there's really not a lot of opportunity for savings by trying to give stronger price incentives to um, uh, consumers for their for their health care, like doctors and hospitals. However, when it comes to pharmacies, we have really good evidence that at least when it comes to these preferred uh, pharmacy networks, people do shop. Um, 
So for unsubsidized enrollees, so the people who don't hit those, you know, $2 or $6 copay maximums, um, we find that these copay differentials between preferred and non-preferred pharmacies um, move about eight percentage points of market share, mm. which relative to, you know, the business of the preferred pharmacies, that's it's quite large. It's about 16%. So for this context, preferred um, pharmacies and prescription drug fills, we do see that people will shop a little bit. We're joined here in studio by Ashley Swanson of the Wharton Healthcare Management Department. Your comments on on uh, Twitter at at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account at DanLoney21. Now, this this idea of steering, which you bring up in your paper, in the context of, of, of what we're talking about here, steering includes what? So steering includes... Um, the decision I talked about before, yeah. where I know that I know that CVS is in my preferred network for my plan, Walgreens is not, and making a decision: Am I going to pay six to eight dollars more to go to CVS instead of Wal? Or sorry, to go to Walgreens because it's more convenient to me uh, versus CVS. That's the steering we're talking about: is switching from one pharmacy to another yeah. based on this copay uh, difference. How prevalent do you think that that process is? in the United States, that people are willing to to make the decision on convenience over a cost? So I think when it comes to prescription drug utilization, um, the fact that we see it for this, you know, elderly Medicare Part D population suggests that in other contexts where people have more access to internet resources, more access to um, information uh, about the price differentials across different options, um, I think, you know, what we find for this context might be a lower bound for what you might see more broadly for prescription drug utilization. However, expanding this notion to hospital utilization or doctor, you know, primary care or specialty doctor utilization, yeah. I, I don't think that there are a lot of opportunities there. Just because there's such a huge body of evidence suggesting that uh, people don't shop for doctors or hospitals. I should say one exception to that rule is one of our former students in the healthcare management department, uh, Ellie Prager, uh, has done some research in Massachusetts looking at tiered hospital networks. Um, and that's a non-elderly population. And she does find some evidence of steering. So so I think more research is needed. Why then do you think that that, that we still have something like limited network plans out there as part of this process right now? Well, I think what our results suggest is that there are savings available from these limited network plans. So, you know, we find savings of about 1% once, yeah. you, once you combine the unsubsidized enrollees that really do respond right. and the subsidized enrollees that really don't respond. Um, so there are some savings available from using levers like this. However, there's a trade-off because it does mean limited access. Yeah. We're joined here by uh, Ashley Swanson of the Wharton School. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I, I guess then with this potential savings, are, are you encouraged that maybe we're starting to be able to tackle at least one of the problems surrounding healthcare right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, whether it's looking at surprise billing for emergency care, this is work that um, Fiona Scott Morton has done with her colleagues, or uh, overspending on long-term care hospitals. This is work that Amy Finkelstein, an economist at MIT, and her excellent co-authors have done. Um, there are a number of sets of research teams that have identified these kinds of kind of small fixes that can be applied in the healthcare system, and I and I think that those 
would be great to implement. And, um, you know, even if the long term goal is more of an overhaul, um, why not? Why not chip away at these problems in the meantime? Because, and I think people really wonder whether or not the, the potential of an overall overhaul uh, of healthcare can actually really take place because of how that that system is kind of structured and it's kind of been ingrained in our in our culture. But if you're able to make the smaller fixes to move along, you may be able to solve some of these bigger problems. Yeah, and and to be perfectly honest, developing this muscle is never going to be a bad idea because even yeah. single payer healthcare systems, they have to make decisions about how to pay doctors, how to pay hospitals, how to pay for drugs. Um, those kinds of healthcare systems, there are going to be inefficiencies in those systems as well, and researchers are going to try and identify those problems and and find solutions to them. So, so developing this framework for making small tweaks to the system is still going to be productive if we move to Medicare for all. Have you been gaining reaction from this public policy paper that you've put together, even even so far? And reaction is to where this can can potentially benefit the system as a whole. Well, to be perfectly honest, most of my conversations about this paper have been in, you know, talking to economists, but um, the Wharton Public Policy Initiative has said that some uh, staffers, some congressional staffers has reached out to them and are interested in a conversation. So maybe that will go somewhere. I guess that's the next step in this process then, hopefully, is to be able to get this before staffers on Capitol Hill to be able to give them the information so that they can better understand what potentially can be done with healthcare because it is such an important topic. Right, absolutely. And and I should say that, you know, what what we're talking about here with the preferred pharmacy networks, this is something that's been implemented by private plans and and they've kind of run with it. Um, I think what we've done with our paper is quantify some of the trade-offs involved in the selective contracting. It does save money, but it does also restrict access. That is going to be useful for thinking about the costs of these kinds of programs going forward um, and evaluating alternative policies. Like, you know, suppose that uh, some entity like the pharmacy lobby proposes um, that you know, the the network adequacy requirements should be applied to the preferred networks. Well, that would probably um, limit plans' abilities to do something like this. And so, so that's where you know this paper would fit into the the national conversation about healthcare reform. What is the reaction uh, of the pharmacy networks to the, the the companies themselves to some of these ideas that 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 will tweak their structure a little bit? Well, I think it's very clear that. Um, the existence of these preferred networks is is a um, a lever that allows Part D plans to push back against uh, a relatively consolidated pharmacy uh, industry. So the pharmacy industry they're not going to be huge fans of this. Sure. Uh, what is the expectation then that that the consumer, the average consumer that would be on a Part D plan, can take from the research that you've done and the hope that that cost will be able to be contained and continue to be to monitored and maybe even lowered at some point down the road? Well, I think that, you know, as with um, any kinds of restrictions like high deductibles in your health care plan or restrictive um, uh, hospital or, or doctor networks, um, it might the fact that costs, premium costs might go down in the long term might be a bit of cold comfort. So, mm-hmm. um Hopefully, if we can get to a place where these 
preferred pharmacy networks are so well designed that um, nobody feels the pinch of them, um, but they are uh, in some way lowering costs. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like. Um, then enrollees might feel a little bit better about it. But in the meantime, I think it's clear that the enrollees do not love these restrictive preferred networks. Right. And, and they are and they are getting the pinch on this. And, and again, when you're talking about the wide range of, of people that would be involved in these plans, especially in the lower cost side, the pinch becomes even harder because of the economic strains that they that they're feeling on a, on a daily basis to begin with. Absolutely, you know, even when you when you're talking about people who are um, living kind of close to their budget constraint as it is, you know, having to pay six dollars more for every drug that you take every month that's gonna that's gonna hit you, um, and you know that's on top of all of the other financial strains and decisions that they have to deal with throughout the year you know prescription drugs are are a small part of your overall consumption portfolio um but uh you know this is real money it adds up but can this idea of looking at at both sides of a topic can this play out not only obviously as as you're doing in the pharmacy side but looking at other areas of healthcare where maybe this this type of idea can be implemented as well yeah, well, so in the other parts of the healthcare system, and I'm I'm always kind of thinking about pharmacies as being kind of distinct from uh, hospitals and doctors, yeah. because there's been such um, uh, such limited evidence that people can be steered when it comes to hospital and doctor networks. The narrow networks that we see for uh, health plans covering hospitals and doctors are really. Um, the restriction is on the network overall. Right. So if you go out of network, the insurance plan is not going to pay for yeah, it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so this kind of in-between strategy that we've seen be pretty successful on the prescription drug side, it would be hard to implement on the hospital or doctor side. Great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Nice to see you as well. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Ashley Swanson, uh, Assistant Professor of Healthcare Management here at the Wharton School. The uh, brief that uh, she put together, Preferred Pharmacy Networks, Healthcare Savings on the Margins. Uh, if you go to the uh, Wharton Public Policy Initiative website, you'll be able to find that paper and take a look at it there. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 